I'm Raji Sohal. On the podcast today, we cover the growing number of tent cities across Vancouver that are used by the vulnerable and unhoused. We continue our series on Hockey Canada. Where should we be looking to get accountability on the cases of sexual assault that have taken place for decades? But first, pet custody cases are up. That's right, pet custody. Couples fighting over Fluffy. Let's find out what that's about. Pet custody cases are on the rise as couples split under pandemic pressure. So why is this happening? Are pandemic pets in danger? We're going to speak now with Victoria Schroff. She's a Vancouver-based animal lawyer. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning. All right, Victoria, I, I need you to really break this down for us. What is a pet custody case? Okay, so a pet custody case is any time where two people are fighting over an animal. It's often a dog or a cat. We're usually talking about companion animals, but it can be other animals as well. So this can be a romantic couple. It can be roommates. It can be a rescue organization and the person who adopted the animal. Um, we, we often see these come down on um, a relationship that has imploded. And as you said, post-COVID, or well, not, even, not really post-COVID, but um, after things started opening up, divorces also started being on the rise. And so we've seen an increase in people fighting over who gets the dog or cat. Okay, Victoria, I guess I'm wondering, why does it turn legal? Like, don't couples have these conversations before mm-hmm. they get a pet? That's a great question. Um, I'm with you there. Um, I think what happens is, is that... Um, you know, the idea of the pup-nup, believe it or not, there's such a thing called a pup-nup. Um, it's very much like you would have for humans, kind of like a preliminary agreement that you would have in place before you get your animal. And then maybe you would sign something with your partner or um, and just have an understanding about what's going to happen if this relationship implodes. And let's face it, around half of um, relationships implode. So the chances are your dog is going to outlive your marital or your um, situation as a roommate. Yeah, Um, sure. We often see people who might be dating only for a short period of time, um, as many found themselves in quarantine together and this kind of thing over the pandemic or suddenly bubbling with a person that they were dating only briefly and then getting a pet. Um, Are individuals in the couple saying when they get that pet, okay, this will be my pet? Or are they not having those conversations, do you find? Right. I think people are not having those conversations at all. And I think it goes hand in hand with the idea that people jumped into pet ownership, um, I would find, um, during the pandemic. Because in my animal law firm in Vancouver, inquiries about animals and pet custody cases are way up. Really? So I, I, Yeah, I think that people probably just sort of thought, well, we're bored. We need an animal. Let's get an animal at home while we're, while we're quarantining. And it wasn't really well thought out. And then uh, some of those animals are very sadly being returned to shelters for couples who couldn't agree. The other thing is, is that they're going to lawyers. And even after the fact, a couple can avoid court by going to a lawyer um, who wants to talk about how to settle this. And an agreement can be put uh, together to say, you know, well, we're going to be able to maybe share time Um doesn't doesn't work as good with cats. Like I want to put the animal's best interest forward, um, and and so you know time splitting with cats who are territorial not as good. 
Um, but with dogs, um, schedules can be worked out. And also, who's going to pay for the animal, for the vet care, for uh, doggy daycare? He's going to pay for everything right down to the poop bags can be um, figured out in an agreement and avoid the expense and uncertainty of court. Okay, you said it, expense. So how much are people spending on these cases? Thousands, thousands. Wow. It's not just just the, the toll on the pocketbook. It is also a huge emotional toll to have to go to court and argue about basically, like, obviously, Everybody is thinking about their animal as a family member. I I don't think there's any doubt in most people's mind. I've seen statistics that reflect that, too, that the majority of people discuss and think of their animals as as their family member. So people are going to court to fight for their animal um, as a family member. But the law does not see the pet as a family member, usually. This is is where there's that, that tension between societal expectations and how the law treats animals as property. Right, yes. Do you ever see an individual go rogue with the pet and just like do whatever they want with the pet, send the pet off without the other person's permission or without consulting them or just taking the pet without having a conversation? Absolutely. It's been known to happen. People province skip, country skip with the pet. Um, and depending on how acrimonious the split is, uh, the animal is used as a pawn. So at the outset, you were saying, you know, what's the fallout for the pet, in a sense, you were kind of asking. And, and it can be bad, because uh, I think the, the pet can end up with the wrong person. Um, and then there, you know, in those cases, you might need to have um, an application in court to try to regain custody. And I'm using the word custody in air quotes, because what you're trying to do is actually get ownership of the um, pet in question. So do you think that we should be seeing animals not as property then as family members? We know people care so much for their pets. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I actually just, I wrote a book last year. It's called Canadian Animal Law. And one of the main themes running through the book is that we need to actually try to move animals away from the property paradigm in order for them to have some semblance of rights. Because currently, the idea of animals and having rights is um, aspirational for the most part. In pet custody, we've seen some shifts, though. It, you know, And I will add that maybe this will be interesting to some of your listeners, is that pet custody is not new. There have been cases that I found easily going back to 1980 in Ontario, cases that were splashed all over the newspapers at the time, uh, about a couple arguing about who gets to keep the dog. Um, so uh, that's, you know, it's not something it's not something as new as you might think. You know, we've got cases going back decades. Um, And, you know, so so all of this comes down to the idea of moving animals away from the property paradigm where possible is that, um, you know, I'm just reading right out of my book here. And it says we are working toward access to justice for animals in pet custody. And when a court of appeal like has happened in Newfoundland um, states in the dissent that the ownership of a dog is more complex and nuanced uh, than the ownership of, say, a bicycle. Um, that I find very encouraging. So I, you know, I, I want your readers to know that if they do go to court, it's not necessarily always bad. But I, as a lawyer, try to keep my clients out of court, and we've had a lot more success in trying to broker our own agreements and saying, 
everything that we need to say and putting it into an agreement that the couple can abide by um, rather than risking heartbreak in court. You mentioned that uh, the pets should not be seen under this property paradigm, that it's not appropriate for that designation. But then some people will just send their dog off to the SPCA really quickly soon after getting it. And we, uh, we've we heard from the SPCA in recent uh, months that that's happened uh, in huge numbers since the pandemic yeah. ended. Absolutely. No, no, you're right. You're right. And I think I think that, you know, while the law is catching up with societal views and expectations, I, I would wish that people would enter into adopting an animal and realize that this is something for life. This is not something you do on a whim. And so it's really important that the couple figure something out so that they are not leaving the animal in a bind. And until we get to the place where a few states have already gone in the USA, where there's actually um, pet custody statutes, um, it basically differentiates animals from other type of property. And I, I think I think most most courts already know that animals are sentient. It's not a question that they don't know. They're applying the law. And so, um, you know, I think this is something that's really important to decide before um, people go ahead and bring Fluffy or Fido home and and that they realize that, you know, pets are not commodities to be kind of used and then discarded once the relationship is over. But I will say it is much better for a couple to relinquish their pet than to leave their pet by a roadside, which I've also heard about um, definitely go to a humane shelter go to a go to an adoption agency or or, or foster um, an animal instead of adopting at the beginning see yeah. how you do with an animal yeah mm-hmm. very good tips Victoria this is such a fascinating topic thanks for being on with us this Sunday morning that's my pleasure After several incidents throughout the Lower Mainland from the disturbing shootings in Langley to encampments in parks and on the road, we are talking about tent cities. Organizers say they provide vital community to unhoused people. Critics say they are a public health disaster in the making. Let's welcome Trisha Barker to the program. She's the Park Board Commissioner at the City of Vancouver. Welcome to the program, Trisha. Good morning. All right. How would you characterize the state of Vancouver's tent cities today? Well, it is just uh, the continuing story as far as I can see it. You know, um, we had Oppenheimer Park and we got through that. Then we had Strathcona Park. Uh, That was a very long tent encampment that we dealt with. We have Crab Park that there's a big tent encampment down there. But because it's removed from where a lot of people see, uh, that doesn't get talked about a lot. And now we have the one on Hastings. And because a lot of people drive down Hastings, can see it and see how appalling it is, how unsafe it is. Um, that's why I think that it, it, it's come you know, to the forefront of people talking about it again. And uh, I think that you only have to go down there and take a look yourself to see that this is something we we shouldn't be having in our city. And uh, we have to come up with a solution to make sure that um, these aren't taking over areas of, you know, our parks or city streets. Okay, let's have you paint a picture for us. What is appalling about them? What concerns you about the tents? Well, there's the safety factor. My goodness, um, when you 
uh, go by there, uh, you know, you've got um, uh, fire hazards with propane. Uh, you have uh, the chop shops that are set up within these tents. You have people, obviously, there's many people down there with uh, drug issues. So, uh, especially on Hastings, you have people, you know, wandering out onto the streets. Uh, it goes on and on. And so I, um, to go down there and see it yourself, that's when you can see really what's happening. And, you know, everyone down there does have their own story also. And I think that's what we have to remember. You can't just label all the people in uh, that situation as one type of person, because we do have the mental health issues. We have the drug addiction addiction issues. And we have some people who are living on the street because they uh, aren't, don't feel safe in their own home. And unfortunately, we have the criminal element that comes in and preys on the people that just need our help. So we have all of these mixed together. And when you drive down Hastings, I think you see that it's just all, you know, come together in a, in a horrible way. Do we have a picture of how many tents there are? I know it would be very hard to get numbers on how many people are living in these tent cities, but do we have an idea? Well, it's one thing that I've learned with getting all the reports at the park tent encampments was there's a lot of tents, but not as many people. And a lot of these people actually do have places uh, to live and they would come to the tent encampments during the day. And that's where you can get, you know, we would get um, government people to go in there and they actually find out how many people live there, how many people are spending the night there, and then how many people, you know, just come and populate it during the day. It's, I think, much harder on Hastings because there's so many people coming and going. But I know at the other tent encampments, we used to get reports all the time about the actual people who were living there. And it's surprisingly much lower than you would expect because there's a lot of empty tents that are just, you know, put up for storage, things like that. So the number of tents doesn't always mean the number of people. Okay, that's interesting to know. And what do organizers of these tent encampments say? Oh, I mean, um, that's where sometimes we get such mixed messages on what is going on. And um, I people have heard this before when I was a teenager. I was homeless on and off for three years. And um, so I know that there's uh, people who are homeless that we never hear about. And and I was one of those people. So, um, you know, when, when they talk about, you know, you have to be dealing with people with mental health issues or drug issues. Yes, there is that. But there's so many other issues that people have that, cause them to be homeless. And I think that when the focus goes on one group, we forget about the other group. And, um, you know, when uh, you know, people have to leave a home because it's unsafe, we have to understand that those are sometimes people that are ending up on the street down there, and then they get preyed on by the criminal element. Those are the people we've got to really step in. We've got to save everyone. But what really concerns me is, you know, when people head to that area thinking it might be a better option and being homeless is never a better option. 
Mm-hmm. Trisha, it seems we periodically have a conversation about 10 cities when an incident arises and then it falls again to the wayside. It seems we need to do something that will change the situation more permanently. So what do you think should happen? I think that uh, it's not just one thing, just uh, building places where, um, you know, we can house these people. That's not going to help. It will help for a little bit, and uh, but some people choose to live on the street. Um, I think that one thing that could uh, help in the meantime is we, if we had better situations for people that wanted to have a tent encampment, not along the street, um, you know, and, and we've talked about this many times when they were taking over neighborhood parks. You know, let's try to get them out of the park so they can have the, the community can have their park back. So whether it's you know, moving them to a maybe um, a parking lot that has, you know, washroom facilities and has the medical help there and uh, other things that can really benefit them as they're going through this. But um, right now on the street on Hastings, that's not helpful. And you're right in saying that we start to talk about this when an issue comes up and then it fades away again. And uh, I'm always surprised no one is talking about crab park encampment, but it's because it's hidden. And even when you drive down the street, you don't really see it. But I know the people in the neighborhood, you know, don't get to use their park anymore. Yeah. Trisha, thank you so much for being with us this morning to talk about this important issue. Thank you. Last Wednesday at a standing committee on Canadian heritage, executives from Hockey Canada met with MPs probing Hockey Canada's conduct in the wake of allegations. When asked if he was going to step down, CEO Scott Smith had this to say. I believe I said in my opening statement uh, that I'm prepared to take on this responsibility for change within our game. I believe I've got the experience to do it. Should our board or the governance review that we've outlined in our action plan suggest that I'm not the person, then I'm prepared to accept that. But does fixing the problem inside Hockey Canada need leadership changes? Taylor McKee is the Assistant Professor of Sports Management at Brock University and joins us on the line right now. Good morning, Taylor. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you wrote in an article in the conversation uh, that Hockey Canada has led the public to believe that settlements have gone to just a couple of cases, but there have been actually many, many cases that never made it to light in the same way as the latest one has. Uh, You wrote that Hockey Canada has paid $7.6 million in sexual assault settlements since 1989. How did that happen without the public's knowledge? Well, it's an excellent question and something that certainly I think the public has become far more aware of since the, uh, the, the two days of hearings. I think one of the things that we've learned, um, certainly about the the amount of settlements, and if you uh, if you if you heard the the Hockey Canada statements at the hearings themselves, they said yes, we paid out this money, but you know, six point eight million of that was to uh, was to Graham James or, or Graham James related expenses, and when you consider it in those contexts, oh, it doesn't seem like very much. However, with the 2018 World Junior Team scandal that's just broken, and the 2003 World Junior Team that is still breaking. Uh, we see a, a very, very, very troubling pattern of behavior where there are sort of these these very, very high-profile teams, very high-profile and horrifying incidents uh, being settled, and this happens sort of in the background. Now, when they talk about how we, we only paid $6.8 million of that to, to Graham James, the real question is how could we have done this so long ago and seemingly have learned so very little 
in the interim. I mean, that's, that's something that I think we should be considering as as Canadians. The Graham James scandal was deeply troubling and deeply wounding, and yet it seems as though we have we have not moved very far since that very incident. Yeah, the parliamentary hearings, they they showed deep-rooted issues with Hockey Canada's uh, internal toxic culture, their leadership, their governance. The institution's been criticized now by by heavyweights at every level of government, obviously by its sponsors who pulled out, and then I think by the general population. People are horrified. You say a leadership change is what's going to make it change, but... What could new management achieve when the culture is so rot? Well, it's an excellent question, and it's sort of the the billion dollar question right now: is is how do we make this change happen? Is firing someone or is you know swapping the board out going to make a difference? Yeah. The real question is, you know, we we look at that action plan that they put out, and they said, "Don't worry, you know, we've learned our lesson, and we're going to move forward." But you know, to use a sporting analogy to sort of go back to the, the topic of this whole uh, sort of situation. If your team is, is performing extremely badly and they're in last place and they say, don't worry, we know we're going to get this thing all figured out. Do you want to trust the management team that got you in the last place to get you out of last place? I mean, seemingly they are the ones that got us into this mess in the first place. So one of the, that's a, a bit of a trite analogy, but the point is these people and, and the people that have sort of run things uh, for, for, for many years here and the people that have come from these types of backgrounds, perhaps have done all they can and maybe perhaps it's time to bring in people with other types of expertise maybe those who have different uh, expertise in dealing with trauma for instance uh, to, to help guide hockey canada forward here certainly in dealing with the ways that they're they're, they're dealing with these issues they're going to need expertise from some other from from other places so it's not necessarily a question of culpability and i think that's really important for us to remember i mean this is a question of accountability and if we have a and this is true in the private sector in the public sector and in all walks of life Sometimes a change is needed, not necessarily because of blame, but because of accountability and a new direction moving forward. Yeah, you mentioned that they say, oh, we've learned things will be different now. What did they learn? They haven't learned. You also provide a track record for how many of our years going over spanning decades where they demonstrated they did not learn. (laughs) It's a great question. I mean, cynically, you'd look at this and you'd say, you know, the lessons that have been learned uh, certainly since, let's just say, if we, if we take this from the start of Graham James, the Graham James scandal in the mid-90s, uh, from that point on, public disclosures have revealed, and, and certainly even the, the diligent reporting of a few journalists have revealed, uh, that the pattern that they've learned is that they'll just do this in the shadows and they'll do it from the, uh, behind the public's uh, back for the most part. And as long as they keep it from the public's eye, this is sort of status quo. It's, the idea is, what have they learned here? Have they learned it's best to to sort of disclose this thing and we should probably address the very, very real culture or have they learned that it's really best uh, not to get caught? Because it's important to remember there's a double-barreled scandal facing Hockey Canada right now and that's with Hockey Canada athletes being uh, abused themselves with, uh, you know, tracing back to the Graham James scandal in the 90s and even the Kyle Beach scandal to this uh, to this very day. Yeah. And as abusers themselves. Yeah. So clearly, as you as you eloquently pointed out, there we have a culture problem, absolutely. But but the question is, are are the people in power right now the ones that can fix it, and is there an appetite to do so? Yeah, you do mention leadership a lot in this article that you've written for the con- for the conversation. What about the grassroots, though? I, you know, I interviewed a hockey mom, for example, who outlined fear of retribution, intimidation, uh, kids getting benched, parents getting ousted. I wonder why. I wonder what parents can do, and I do wonder 
why parents would even want their kids to participate in such a clearly toxic system. And that's, again, now you're asking excellent questions again. This is exactly the existential threat that exists at the grassroots level when it comes to these these types of of discussions. That's what keeps Hockey Canada up at night. Absolutely, losing corporate sponsorship dollars does too. But these grassroots questions are really tough. So one of the, the things we've learned from this scandal is this absolute code of silence that seems to exist in the dressing room. And this is something that, you know, yeah. we've known about for a long time that, you know, what happens in the dressing room is, is sacred and the right. idea of self-policing is very important. But you sort of start to wonder when do, when do players, hockey players learn these attitudes? Certainly not. They don't learn this when they play for team Canada, at the world juniors, by that point, they are you know, essentially finished products in terms of what they know about hockey culture. Do they learn it when they're, 14? Do they learn it when they're 13, 12, 10? And this is a very troubling sort of idea is, you know, this code of silence, this notion that, you know, what happens in certain spaces is secret. They learn that very, very, very early in hockey. And if you ask hockey parents and coaches, I think that they would sort of admit that, that going back very, very, very early on in the hockey process, you learn that you're supposed to sort of have this this code of silence about what happens on and what happens in the dressing room. So that's something that I think needs to be changed is quite easily changed so when you're asking what parents can do ask a lot of questions you know you know be involved in that way to a healthy extent i don't think that necessarily hockey coaches would be advocating for more parental involvement in the day-to-day operations of their you know their ice time and things like that but but just letting their their kids know that they're they're safe in these spaces and that there's someone looking out for them that seems to be something that we've learned is extremely important moving forward okay but are they ever safe in those spaces I mean, it's, it's a good question. Certainly, we've learned that um, these spaces, by design and, and, and the way that they are, they are created, uh, allow for very, very, very sort of toxic environments, toxic petri dishes to develop. So very serious questions need to be asked about the way in which these spaces operate, right? The way in which they, they relate to parents uh, and the way that coaches sort of handle situations like that because if you think about hockey compared to other sports there are unique situations in hockey that many canadians take for granted that don't say apply in other sports like basketball or, or football or or soccer even where there are just specific time it has to do with very you know, unique things to hockey with you know, how long it takes to get ready and how much time is spent in the dressing room along with coaches things like that and the type of education that coaches receive we, we've heard this over and over and over again we're like we need to change the training for coaches coaches training yes 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 well the truth of the matter is at the grassroots level, most most of these coaches are, are volunteer parents. So we're not dealing with, with with you know extreme expertise at that level. So if they're learning these behaviors at a, at a time in their hockey career which they're being uh, coached and instructed by volunteer parents, then we have really serious problems about the way that hockey sort of inculcates its culture and its players. Yeah. Wow, Taylor, we've got so much more to talk about, I think, in this conversation that I think people are having, continuing to have at home, at work with one another. It's got that what's happened is horrific, but it's got a lot of Canadians talking. Absolutely. And and, and it's it's unfortunately not a discussion that's, that's that's settled. We are essentially, I think, about a third of the way through this, just the 2018 and 2003 scandal. Yeah. So we're going to be asking these questions for a while. Yeah. Taylor, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.